And I think I ended up dragging the glider across the desert there after clearing it a bit over the edge of the road and then just sort of started settling in for the night. It was unclear to me how long it was going to be. I called my wife and said, look, I'm safe. And, you know, the glider's here. It's it's fine. I'm just going to spend the night in the glider if necessary. I just sort of closed the canopy and stuff. And then I started hearing, Peter, you know, from a very great distance. <laughs> Welcome to Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. My name is Chuck. I'm your host, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and flying with the Cumberland Soaring Group. This is episode 83. Thank you so much for joining us for another soaring adventure. Excited to bring you more great guest pilots on this episode. If you haven't already, please go ahead and hit the subscribe button. If you really want to help grow the podcast, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. A big thank you to all of our Patreon pilots for contributing to the podcast. Greatly appreciated. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash soaringthesky. We do have some benefits for those of you that want to do that. If you don't want to use Patreon, you can still help the show by going to our website and hitting the support the show button. While you're at our website, you can also sign up for our newsletter. This episode is sponsored by the Southern California Soaring Academy, a 501c3 nonprofit organization located in the high desert of Los Angeles, California. Soaring Academy is dedicated to growing the sport of soaring with young people through its 8th grade STEM outreach programs and giving back to PTSD-afflicted veterans during private monthly events. Flight lessons and mountain soaring are available year-round to the general public. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. To learn how you can get involved, check them out on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at Soaring Academy or online at SoCalSoaringAcademy.org. On this episode of the podcast, we first head to the Prescott Soaring Club in Coyote Springs, Arizona, just northeast of Prescott Valley as we speak with glider pilot and instructor Peter Steinmetz. Peter is a research neurologist and computational neuroscientist he was fascinated by flight and space from an early age, but a busy career deferred his pilot training until 2015. Since then, he has completed his instrument rating and is a certified flight instructor in both gliders and single-engine airplanes, as well as an advanced ground instructor. He purchased a 1969 Cessna Cardinal prior to his solo and enjoys flying it over the wild spaces of Arizona. He currently flies with the Prescott Soaring Association and at Estrella Sailport. He lives in Tempe, Arizona with his wife, son, and four cats. Peter will share his soaring adventures and what it's like being winch-launched over the desert. Later on the podcast, author and glider pilot Dale Masters joins us for another short story on Soaring Tales with Dale. This one is titled, Don't Back Down, Back Up. For our tips and techniques segment, we catch up with glider pilot and author of the blog Chess in the Air, Clemens Chipek, to find out if 2020 was a pandemic write-off. Clemens shares with us his transition to flap gliders in his new Ventus 2CXT, which also has a sustainer, and he will explain the benefits of having that. He also talks about his adventures soaring in Nephi, Utah with Bruno Vassell, as well as doing more soaring over the Rocky Mountains in Colorado. We will also see how he did this year in the OLC Speed League and find out how your club can compete in that league. To finish our episode, it's our soaring safety segment as we get some great advice from Czech National Women's Gliding Team member 
Hanna Treslova, as she talks about the importance of learning from our mistakes as well as others. All of this now on episode 83 of Soaring the Sky. Peter Steinmetz, welcome to Soaring the Sky. Happy to have you today. How are you? I am doing very well. Thanks for inviting me, Chuck. Absolutely. Where are you flying out of? Well, primarily these days I've been flying out of uh, Prescott, Arizona, the Prescott Soaring Group up there. Can you tell me a little bit about that glider port? Yeah, so that's an interesting glider port. Uh, those of uh, the audience who may know the area know Prescott's reasonably high, about a mile high, actually about 1,000 feet up there. And uh, so the uh, the glider port is basically a mile square of, um, of BLM land, so Bureau of Land Management land that they lease. And uh, when I first went up there, I, I did most of my training elsewhere, actually, down at the Estrella Sailport, uh, which is, you know, a big training uh, commercial operation that is uh, south southwest of Phoenix. Uh, but then I, I started getting interested in flying with the club up there. And the first time I went up there, I was really astonished because it's it's one of the rarer winch launch operations in the United States. Oh, very nice. Yeah. And so, you know, they've essentially got 6,000 feet of music wire right uh, along the diagonal runway uh, in this square mile right so it's this long long piece of wire that gets attached to the glide you know the glider on on the launch side and and the uh, big motor on the other so uh, that they've got that as their main runway right down along there where they run the um, the launches and the in the ports and they've got about two or three uh, sort of smaller um, you know crosswind runways and so this is all sort of a uh, deserty it's very deserty and uh, it's dirt. You can't land a powered plane there, I learned, which disappointed me a little bit because I had been thinking about flying up there occasionally. But uh, you can't land power on there. But, you know, it's it's a very nice place to be in, in the summer, especially if you're like me and you live down here in the Valley of the Sun where it's very hot in the summer. It's much cooler up there. What kind of altitude does that give you, the winch launch? The winch. So the winch launch, usually you can get somewhere between 1,700 and 2,100 feet uh, off that much wire. And with the motor they've got on it. So they've got like an old V8, I think about almost 400 horsepower uh, motor uh, that runs and pulls the glider. So so you can get actually pretty good altitude. And uh, I was surprised to learn there's uh, really very often lift um, that you can then catch uh, as you kind of go around the pattern area there. And, and then, uh, you know, people do soaring flights to really very high heights from there. Now, when you were training, did you train with the Aerotow? Yeah, my primary training was was at the Estrella Sailport, uh, and was that's all Aerotow down there. I did a lot of Aerotows uh, in the course of getting my commercial. Yeah. Now you came into soaring already flying powered, right? That's right. Yeah, I was already a. Um, well, it's kind of funny because I, you know, I got into soaring because I was I was prevented actually from flying my own plane for a while due to a bunch of bureaucratic things. And uh, a friend of mine said, well, maybe you could fly gliders in the interim. So I, I had started flying power back in 2015, July of 2015, and, and was already a certificated private pilot in power. And then in 2017, I had these issues. And so a friend of mine said, well, maybe you could fly gliders. And so I started flying gliders, I think, October of 2017. Came into it from there. And then I was working on that. And, you know, I'm a little bit older. And uh, so I was working on my trying to get a private or maybe a commercial on my glider, but I was also going to start working on commercial power. And I don't know if you remember, but back then with the big pilot shortage, 
there was actually a waiting list uh, to get, you know, uh, instruction in getting a commercial power certificate because of the shortage uh, of the uh, complex gear airplanes, right? The, you, back then, you had to have time in a complex plane to get your commercial. That has subsequently, of course, been uh, changed. Uh, you no longer have to have commercial uh, or complex time to get a commercial. So I was on this waiting list. And in the meantime, I was I was also training on, on uh, gliders. And then suddenly I got a call that, oh, a spot had opened up. And so at first I tried to do both at the same time. But at my age, I just can't do that very effectively. There's a lot. I don't know if you've ever experienced that sort of an interference between like uh, trying to fly power and then also trying to fly gliders, especially when I'm learning a new task. Right. Yeah. So I was discussing it one day with my glider instructor and he's like, well, since you're going to be getting a commercial anyway, why don't you just go ahead and finish the commercial in power and then come back and then you can do an add-on, a glider add-on at commercial level. And he's like, look, there's not very many differences. You know, and if you go and you look at the PTSs still for gliders, right? I think there's just three little differences between the private and the commercial standard um, officially. What I subsequently found out when I came back after finishing my commercial power and then going on to the commercial glider is, yes, but there's a lot of unofficial expectations. And I would often hear from people, well, you know, if you were just trying to train and, and finish a private check ride, you know, you'd be fine. But, you know, you've got to fly better than that. You know, you've you got to be more coordinated than that if you're going to be a commercial pilot. <laughs> <laughs> So that that's uh, sort of how I ended up going for a commercial add-on in gliders rather than first going for a private. So what did you find in gliders that you really liked compared to power? Um, I think it's really the, the challenge of it, um, you know, of, of finding lift and exploiting it is probably the thing that's most attractive to me. I mean, frankly, when I first started training in gliders in the fall, uh, you know, if you know the weather down here, you can... You can do your training all the time, pretty much year-round, and that's one of the nice things about that operation. But you're not going to find much lift in October and November and December. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe a little bit along the ridges, but a lot of it along here, out here is, is thermals, right? Because the desert gets real hot. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, basically I was just doing a whole series of sled rides, right? So we'd get a toe up and go out and, you know, do some steep turns or maybe some stalls and then come down and, you know, do a landing and then go up and do some more landings. And, and I don't know, I think after doing that for, you know, a couple of weeks, I was flying once or twice a week in the gliders. And after a couple of weeks of that, I was, I, I actually sort of started to think, boy, is it even really worth finishing this rating? I mean, you know, this isn't really that much fun, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but then one day we were out with my instructor and she's like, oh, I think there's a little lift here today. And so we went out and actually found some thermals and started really, uh, you know, we're able to exploit that for, I think, three or four thousand feet up. And that's what really got me hooked. After that, I realized, ah, this is really cool. <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. So are you flying a club glider now or do you have your own glider? I'm No, I, I just fly the club gliders now. Um, you know, it used to be I flew the rental gliders. I've been flying mostly lately in a one, 126, um, which I really wow. like uh, because, you know, it's so sporty, essentially. <laughs> I love the 126. That's what I'm flying now, actually. Oh, okay. And it's uh, I, I always describe it as a sports car in the air. Yes, that's a very – that's exactly right because – because, uh, you know, I, I always tell this story that when I was finishing my, I also am a, a glider CFI now, a flight instructor, and I finished that last year. And 
when I was finishing that up and getting ready for the check ride, I was just, you know, going up and, uh, you know, doing a ton of flights in a 232, right, in order to right. really have it dialed in for the for the check ride. And as soon as I finished, passed my check ride, I went out the next day and, and flew the 126. And I remember getting up there and starting to fly it around and just starting to laugh at how much more fun, <laughs> right. you know, and, and maneuverable the whole thing was. I think I was laughing the whole way down. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's such a blast. Yeah, it's a great, great glider. And I'm actually looking to possibly uh, buy a glider myself now. And I probably will buy a 126 to build time in uh, initially, I think. Yeah, they they are so much fun. I remember the first time I did some ridge soaring in the 126. And I just did a little bit back and forth on the one ridge. And, oh, yeah, it was so much fun. I, I think I was like you. I was smiling the whole time. Yep. Now, what, what ridge are you talking about there when you're saying you're going back and forth? There's a ridge there in Cumberland. It's the first ridge right there at the airport. It goes kind of north, north to south. Oh, okay. And you can actually do, you know, some ridge soaring on there when the winds are northwest. Oh, okay. I see. Yeah, so it sort of comes down and bounces off uh, almost and gets yeah. pushed up there, I guess. Yeah, you can you can set up there for quite a while if the, if the winds are right. I bet. Yeah, I've had I've had a couple of days where, you know, when I the the first time I really got up high soaring was uh, down at Estrella because there's the Sierra Estrella Mountains that is a north-south uh, sort of running ridge of mountains on the west side of Phoenix uh, and to the southwest of Phoenix. And then the, the, the glider port is, is right at the south end of that ridge. And so you can often do, uh, you'll find some ridge lift and also some thermals kind of coming off the sharp points of that ridge. Uh, when the heat is good. And so I think the first time I ever really got up high was was essentially going back and forth along that ridge uh, and then finding finding the lift as it went along. Got up to, I think, 13,000 oh, nice. one day. Yeah, so it was, you know, pretty good, uh, pretty good rise off of probably the 2,500-foot toe. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, especially for a beginner. I mean, I'm just an amateur at uh, chasing lift at this point. Yeah, I think it was my second or third solo, and I got got lucky and found a really nice thermal and rode it up to eighty seven hundred, and that was that was kind of intimidating for me that early flying solo. Oh, really? Yeah. You found it intimidating? Yeah, because I just wasn't I wasn't expecting all that lift, you know, not not on my second or third solo, and I just kept going up and going up and going. So well, okay, I guess just keep riding this up. And it was like five, six, seven, and, and you know, it was, at one point I was like, "When's this going to top out?" <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, you do. And then, and then, of course, when you get to the top, it becomes, you know, the thing that astonished me the first time I got to the top of the lift was a uh, top of a thermal was sort of how turbulent it is there. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, just constantly sort of throwing you out of the thermal and tossing you around on top of it into an incipient spin. I was like, whoa. And I'm like, well, I'm high enough up. I guess I'm not going to get too scared. Yeah. <laughs> you know, even though I'm kind of being turned over sideways here. But um, oh, Speaking of, have you had anything crazy happen while you're in the air? Something that really sticks out in your mind? Um, I don't know about super crazy uh, while in the air, I, I will say that up in Prescott, you know, it's really impressive what people are able to do with soaring up there. You know, it's pretty routine for the people who are really good and good cross-country pilots to uh, take off in Prescott, Arizona, climb up to, you know, they're using oxygen. So they're getting up to 15, 16,000 feet. And then they're they're going and finding lift and, and flying over the Grand Canyon and back. 
and you know which is an extraordinary wow. thing to be able to do and and so you know the i guess the thing that sort of astonished me the most was one time in prescott i was there and it really hit this huge thermal and it was it was just going up at you know i mean it pegged the uh the vario um you know the old mechanical vario just pegged it and and just carried me right up to like 14,000 feet and I was just like, whoa, this is, I'm like, this is great, you know, but uh, it was, it was really pretty astonishing how much, how, how often you can get lift up there. So it's, it's really a neat area uh, to go soaring. So at your glider port, are they doing anything to help out the soaring community as far as do they have any events for the public? What, what are they doing? Well, they, yeah, I mean, the Prescott Area Soaring Club, um, you know, is a, is pretty open. They do, a lot of people will come out to visit them um, because, you know, it's kind of visible where the glider port is on one of the, the roads out there. And so people will stop by. Um, so they're pretty open to people coming out and, and doing beginning flights and things like that. Um, they don't really have a lot of explicit outreach activities, I would say at this point um, as a club. It's, it's certainly something that we could add, I suppose, Um for the future, uh, you know, Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, of course, has a has a um, you know a campus there in Prescott, and so oh, yeah, right. and so there you know there's a fair number of students who come out, um, you know, who are into yeah. aviation at Embry uh, that will come out and and do some glider flights as well. The only other thing, I guess, you know, it's just stuff I've been doing. You know, I I attend the the I don't know if you know about the EA. The uh, EAAs, you know, they have these VMC clubs, right, which are sort of these social gatherings um, that they run once a month. So I'm a person who often talks about soaring and gliding at those, <laughs> trying, to, oh, nice. trying to get people interested in it. Yeah, get the word out. Yeah, yeah. And, it, you know, of course, uh, you know, the Estrella Sailport as a big commercial operation, I think, does end up introducing a very large number of people to gliding because they'll offer these accelerated uh, courses. There's a lot of people who will uh, come out to do an add-on rating. Maybe they're already powered pilots, and you know you can come out and stay in their bunkhouse uh, for a couple weeks, oftentimes, and finish your your glider add-on. Definitely, you know, I mean, Arizona is known for its flight training, of course, of all sorts. <laughs> and now a word about our recently added new sponsor, Just Soaring. These guys are doing an all-new glider simulator cockpit for you Condor pilots out there that I think you're really going to be excited about. This sim rig was designed from the ground up with glider flight controls like flaps that have multi-position detents, a spring-loaded spoiler mechanism, landing gear lever, and flight controls laid out where you expect them to be in your cockpit. Built with super strong 8020 T-slot aluminum, which will not only hold up well, but will also allow for accessorization and customization over time. Designed by Glider Pilots for Glider Pilots, their mission is to design, engineer, and globally distribute a truly best-in-class, very affordable performance glider sim cockpit. They plan to start taking pre-orders sometime in the next couple months, and they are looking at first shipments to be in spring of 2021. And yes, while they are a U.S. company, they plan to have warehousing in Europe to support that market as well. If you are thinking about upgrading your Condor cockpit, you might want to check these guys out first at JustSoaring.com or at Just.Soaring on Instagram. You can reach out to them via their website with any questions. And thanks again to Just Soaring for supporting the show. If you'd like to be a sponsor or know someone that might, please drop us a line. 
So landouts. Have you had any landouts that stick out in your mind? Oh, yes. Yes. I've uh, actually, even at my relatively limited number of uh, glider hours, I've had two landouts. Um, the first one was, I guess, what they call a classic uh, beginner's mistake. Uh, was fairly early on in my gliding. Fortunately, my instructor had just mentioned, you know, one time that, you know, if you ever have to land out around here, you know, make sure you land parallel to the washes so that, you know, the the desert out there is, is you know, there are washes that are sort of places where when it does rain and there is some moisture, you know, it's flowing downhill, of course, and, and so heading uh, downhill. And so it creates these washes in the desert so it's not completely smooth. And, and she had told me, okay, make sure to land parallel to those washes so you don't end up crossing them. And, and you know, what happened to me was I, I was up on a day that was fairly windy. And so I think it was sort of breaking up the thermals, but there was some light lift, um, and quite honestly, uh, as I was told, lectured very sternly about later, I was making the classic uh, sort of rapture of the heights mistake of chasing the lift along with the wind. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so I got blown too far downwind of the glider port. When Once I realized this, I, I immediately turned to the center of the glider port and started trying to make it back. But uh, probably about a half mile um, from the end of the runway, I realized I'm, I'm not going to make it. And there, you know, there is a line of sort of um, a wash filled with some larger bushes and stuff before you actually get to the runways. So I'm like, this isn't going to work. So I thought, okay, better. And then I remembered, okay, land parallel. So I was able to make a turn and landed uh, just out in the desert. And, you know, there was really no, no injury or no damage to the glider or anything. Um, but that, that was, it was kind of frightening, you know, being early on in your gliding uh, to suddenly be confronted with that feeling that, it's not going to work. <laughs> and then the other time I've landed out actually was up in Prescott and it was on a day when I got this huge lift, but unfortunately it was in front of a storm. And one thing I didn't realize being new up there was, you know, how rapidly those things can blow you away from the glider port. And although I was up at, you know, uh, 13,000 feet, there was just not going to be any way for me to make it back to the uh, glider port. So again, I had to find a spot, uh, and that one ended up being pretty well isolated. <laughs> it was, it was uh, I think, 16 nautical miles north of the glider port. Oh, no. um, what were you flying? It was a two, a, um, a 126. Yep, um, and uh, and those okay. penetrate the wind terribly, of course. So I was yeah, really in a bad right. situation. Um, so you know, I kept trying to look, uh, you know, at the sunny spots that were around this storm and see if I could find some lift and and uh, trying to get back closer to a road and. And eventually realized, uh, eventually I came over a spot where there was just a hint of lift. And I thought, okay, maybe I've got it. And so the choice was, am I going to try to keep going toward the road? But I, I knew I had a spot that I could land fairly close by. So I tried to get this lift, but I couldn't exploit it. Um, and so then I ended up uh, landing pretty remotely. <laughs> uh, actually, it was quite, quite a ways out, uh, sort of on this isolated, circular, flat area. Um, out in the desert between the rivers and things that are out there. So it was a bit of a job actually retrieving it. Yeah, that was my next question. How was that? <laughs> yeah, well, I ended up, so I ended up, what the, I landed, there were no no injuries. There were some tears in the fabric because of, you know, plants and stuff. And it was, you know, uh, relatively smaller plants, but enough to tear fabric on a landing glider. Um, yeah. And I landed out and I had just, it had just a bit of, a bit of, uh, charge on my phone. You know, I really wasn't prepared to do a cross country. It really was a serious uh, sort of mistake in, in decision-making given the conditions up there. 
I had contacted on the radio another plane that was closer to the airport before I was landing and told them roughly where I was. And then I had enough charge on my phone to send them some text messages and my GPS coordinates. And then I spoke to one of the members and he's like, okay, yeah, get busy. It's going to be a couple hours before we can get to you. Um, so get busy and uh, drag the glider across the desert over to this nearby road that I had found. Um, Cause I had seen on my way in that there was a dirt road oh. that, that came near this area. So then I started having to go and, you know, tramp down the cacti and, oh. <laughs> and the, move the old logs and everything. Oh. And I think I ended up dragging, uh, dragging the glider across the desert there after clearing it a bit, probably about what was about, I think 750 feet or so mm. over the edge of the road. And then just sort of started settling in for the night. It was unclear to me how long it was going to be. I had called my wife and said, look, I'm safe. And you know, the glider's here. It's, it's fine. I'm just going to spend the night in the glider if necessary. And, uh, had actually started sort of settling in. I mean, it was, it was becoming dark. And so I had actually gotten in and sort of figured out how to scrunch down, put your legs way down in the front of a 126 in front of the pedals and, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, used the few cushions I had and stuff for pillows and put the seat all the way back and get as comfortable as possible. And I, I just sort of closed the canopy and stuff. And then I started hearing Peter, you know, from a very great distance. <laughs> and, and so I looked around and sure enough, there they were probably half a mile off trying to figure out where I was. Cause of course it was night now. And, and, uh, you know, it wasn't so obvious. So I started yelling back at them and came over. And then it took, you know, probably an hour, the better part of an hour to take the plane apart. You know, 126, you got to take those big bolts out and pull the wings out and, and so on and uh, get it all loaded onto the trailer and haul it back. So that was the recovery. Well, at least it wasn't a 233. That would have made it even tougher. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, I suppose, yeah, the, you know, the 126s aren't too bad to take apart. It, it's not, after that experience, it's not the sort of thing I want to be routinely be doing if I have my own. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, it's not it's not pleasant uh, unscrewing all those bolts and, and pulling out the wings. Um, it's not like some of the glass ships that are really designed to be disassembled and assembled. Yeah, pull the pins out, take the wings, yeah. So I think I'm going to be looking for, it's one of the things that's sort of been a consideration for me about, about getting a glider is, you know, how am I going to transport this? I don't presently own a truck. I don't, I don't know if you have a truck to haul things around. No, not yet, but that, they come in really handy if you're soaring your trailer and a glider. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I've sort of gotten the impression I'm going to need to plan on also buying an old truck uh, to be able to tow the trailer and and uh so on but i probably am going to want to rent you know i may end up renting you can rent us a, a hangar spot at Estrella, which is which is down here um so i may what i may end up doing if i buy my own ship is, is i may keep it down here in phoenix and then continue to fly the club ships up in prescott now you mentioned uh, winch launches before that you're that you're doing there at the club did you have any winch launches that stick out in your mind Oh, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Well, you know, winch launches, you know, are, are a little bit, um, they can be pretty dicey uh, because of the uh, potential for the break, right, and the cable. So, you know, if you think about it, you know, you've got this 6,000 foot piece of metal cable, right? It's not really that thick. Um, in order to keep the weight down and be able to ri- wind it around the spool. And so, you know, it's it's not uncommon for there to be uh, breaks, cable breaks in a winch tow. So you've pretty much always got to be ready. And and one of the things about a winch tow that's very different from aero tow 
um, and I think surprises most people who haven't done them, is the deck angle, right? So, you know, this is sort of like the, it's sort of like running with a kite and trying to get the kite up, right? That's that's kind of what's going on. And so the winch is pulling this thing in, and you're off the ground very quickly. Okay, so when the winch toe starts, uh, the, the glider probably lifts off the ground within 50 feet. Oh, wow. Okay, because you're, you're immediately applying, you know, very rapidly, not a, instantaneously, but yeah. very rapidly applying that full 400 horsepower, right, to a little 126. So, so that thing is flying very quickly. And then you, you pitch it up, and the deck angle is about 45 degrees. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so, you know, you're getting pulled forward, but that very strong deck angle is creating the lift that then lifting the plane up, right? But you can imagine if all of a sudden that lift goes away, if that thrust goes away because the cable snaps, think about the stall situation, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, your immediate reaction in a winch toe has got to be put the nose down, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, very, very strongly. Um, and so I've had a couple of those. The first time the, the cable actually broke on me when I was in the thing on my own, I mean, that's, that's a shock. <laughs> Fortunately, they've got that, you know, they've got that 6,000 foot runway practice. I guess about 4,000 of it is really landable. Then there's sort of a hill that the cable goes over, but... But, you know, fortunately, you know, if you can immediately get the nose down, you can pretty much just land straight ahead if you want to. Okay. Yeah. Um, so when that happened to me at about 200 feet, I was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Did you land straight ahead then? Yeah, I landed straight ahead that time. Now, obviously, you can, you know, above 200 feet, you, you know, you can probably get it flying well enough to make it turn back if you want. Um, you could probably come back around. But, uh, there, you know, I, I probably would wait more until I'm at least 500 feet before trying to just go back in the pattern and, you know, just land normally and bring the ship back to where it started. Yeah. Yeah. That, that angle, I mean, I haven't done winch launches yet. I'm, that's on my list. I have to do that. That angle having a road break, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a shock. I mean, you know, it's bad enough when you practice those ones on arrow toe, right? Uh, yeah. Right. You got to really put the nose down, but in this, you, you, you got to be really serious, but yeah, come on on to Prescott and visit us maybe this winter. Oh, that sounds like it'd be nice. Escape this. Uh, yeah, yeah escape you try this it. Cold weather. Yeah, yeah. Or you can go. Well, if you're coming in February or March, what you want to do is come down to Australia, I think. But that's not a winch launch. But uh, by about yeah. March or April, things will start to be pretty nice up in Prescott if you if you decide to come up that way, and we'll give you some winch launches. <laughs> that that would be very nice. Yeah, I'd, everything I hear about a winch launch is the, that first one is makes a huge impact. <laughs> Yep. Yep. I would say, you know, I was utterly astonished. I mean, the first time I did one, I'm just like, what? We're going up like this? <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, so, I mean, first of all, when I saw the wire, I thought this is crazy. You know, <laughs> yeah. the, the the idea that you're, you're, you're getting hauled up by this 6,000 foot of wire. I thought this is really pretty impressive. And then when I went off on my first one, yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty wild, but you know, it, it's nice in a sense. It's a lot um, cheaper. Right. I mean, the big advantage of a winch is like at the club, we pay uh, $15 for a launch. Oh, nice. So, you know, instead of paying, you know, I think $80 is probably the cheapest I can get by for on an aero tow um, with a, you know, renting a plane and everything and then getting towed um, yeah. on an aero tow. Uh, this is just 15 bucks. Yeah. If you and, got some lift up there that day, you're good to go. Yeah. Yeah. Now you can only, we can only fly the club planes for an hour. So everybody gets a chance, <laughs> um, yeah. obviously, but, uh, but it's a very, affo- I think that's what people like, you know, is it's a very affordable way to get up in the air. Well, that's initially what brought me to soaring was that it was looking for an affordable way to fly. Yeah. And it is, it is a lot, you know, it, 
especially if you're doing it with a club and did you joined the the club there didn't you yes mm-hmm. yep you know that that's that's definitely a very affordable way to go i guess the main complaint people have is just it takes time because you know in the club you're you're doing a lot of work and you know you might get in on a weekend a couple of flights um yeah the consistency of yeah. flying whereas you know that's the advantage of a commercial operation right you know when i first started training you know yeah. we'd do five or six launches in an in, in aerotos in a day yeah and that's the way to do it, really. Yeah, but then it costs more money, right? So. Yeah, right. <laughs> but still, it, it, you know, you're still going to spend the money. It's just it's going to be spread out, and it's always as far as your brain goes, it's better to have a bunch of flights in a row than to spread than to spread them out. Obviously, but. I think so. Yeah, I mean, certainly when I've been learning, I, I've made my best progress towards certificates and things flying two to three times a week. It's been very hard for me to make much progress if I limit myself to say just flying once a week. I mean, nowadays it's not a problem if I'm just maintaining my current skills, but when I'm trying to pick up something new, it it's pretty challenging. And, you know, you don't, you don't learn it as quick as you do uh, as you would have when you were young, when you're older. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I always tell the story about how, so when I first started flying power, this isn't gliding, but when I first started flying power, I, you know, I got my certificate and my son who was a teenager at the time said, well, Dad, would you be willing to fly this friend of mine and I to this internet gaming convention in Austin, Texas? It's about oh. an eight-hour cross-country. I thought, well, yeah, sure. You know, that sounds exciting. Get to do a long cross-country and everything. And my wife says, well, you know, that's okay. But if he's going to be on long cross-countries with you in the plane, I want him to learn how to land the plane because, you know, you know, right. what if something were to happen to you? You have a heart attack or something. How terrifying would that be for a 14-year-old boy to be in a plane with his father and not it was having a heart attack and not know how to get down? So yeah. I thought it was a good idea. So he took a couple lessons. You know, we had him take some lessons from the instructor and he got pretty quickly, I think within three or four lessons, the point where the instructor was like, look, you know, in an emergency, he'll land the plane. Everybody will be okay. Plane might be damaged, but it'll be all right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we were like, okay, that's good. But he really liked flying. So he started taking lessons, you know, and pretty soon I would tell people if it was both him and me in the plane and I wanted a good landing, I'd have him do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because when you're 14, <laughs> uh, yeah, right? Yeah, you pick up landings a lot quicker than when you're in your 50s. That's for sure. There's some uh, young students at the Glidersport here recently. I'm not sure how many flights they've had. I think probably it's in the 30s. But you know, the the one student that stands out, I'm um, I'm watching him, you know, come into land, and he's a little high, so he slips, you know. And I'm like, wow, that's that's a really nice slip, you know. And he he did. I mean, he took care of it and brought it back around and landed. Very nice landing. I said, he, he got down. I said, oh, that's a nice landing. He's like, I try. <laughs> but I'm like, man, how long have you been flying? Like three months and you've already. Yeah, I, you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know. Doing... I know. It's it, it's a motor skill. So yeah, it is. Yeah. So you pick it up quick when you're young. But uh, no, it's been, you know, it's that that's one of the reasons I've enjoyed uh learning the flying and, and the certificates and the techniques that I have is, you know, it's, it's a good challenge, right? I mean, it keeps you, uh, keeps you young at heart. Absolutely. Have you seen anything in the cockpit that was maybe out of the ordinary or just maybe something you saw that was like, wow. Yeah. I mean, a couple, a couple of times, I mean, nothing that's really, uh, highly unusual, I think for glider pilots, but that certainly it's always a lot of fun when, when you end up in a thermal with, you know, a Hawk or, 
you know, another large bird and you realize, yeah, we're both sort of playing the same game here, aren't we? (laughs) 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 Trying to, uh, trying to get some free lift, you know? Um, and that's of course how they, they, they sort of make a living at it. Um, so I, would say that those have been some of the funnest times uh, for me is, is to sort of look out and be like, Oh, wow, that's really cool. (laughs) I'd have to agree with you on that one. Did you want to give anyone a shout out? Well, I, I think I think I should uh, I should thank my mentors uh, in flying. Uh, my first instructor sort of kindly took me under his wing, despite my being a sort of stubborn guy in a way, um, which was Chris Hole, who who did my private in uh, power, and also a mentor of mine, uh, Bruce Waddell at um, at uh, the Estrella Sailport, who did my training for my CFI, and and has always had uh, good instruction as well as good stories. Well, Peter, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And oh, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure, and I enjoy listening to your uh, your podcasts. And uh, I'm sort of working my way through them now. I, I started listening recently, and so I, I appreciate your uh, putting it together. Absolutely. Yeah, we have a little bit of a library now, so it'll take a little time for you to catch up. But thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And now, author and glider pilot Dale Masters brings us another story on Soaring Tales with Dale. This one's called, Don't Back Down, Back Up. It was a winter day with plenty of wind and no thermals. And the wind was an angle where there was just no beneficial place to get on a hill and use it, except back up a uh, narrow canyon. And I was afraid to go up that canyon thinking I might not get back out. So what we did was we went to the mouth of that canyon and flew across it very slowly each direction, drifting uphill, downwind, up the canyon. And each time we would turn back, we'd turn into the wind. And so it was a series of traverses back and forth, and we actually backed up the canyon. We never pointed our nose downwind up the canyon, but we got up to where the slope was. Because it was a canyon with a bit of a Venturi effect, the slope lift went much farther than usual. So we were up nearly 2,000 feet above the top of the hill, and we could see evidence of real wave, classic wave, downwind of our local area, and we had the height to go for it. So we went over the top, downwind into sink, through the trough of the wave, and pulled up in good wave, now well downwind of home, and managed a little modest little cross country, ended up leaving uh, the local area to the south and coming back from the north on a day where nobody else could stay alive. Don't back down, back up. Thank you, Dale, for another great story on Soaring Tales with Dale. We caught up with Clemens Chipek glider pilot and blogger to find out how his 2020 season went. Clemens Chipek, welcome back to Soaring the Sky. I'm so happy to have you again today. Yeah, hi Chuck. I'm happy to be back. So That's awesome. Um, look forward to it. You have a brand new blog. Of course, your blog is Chess in the Air. And the latest one is titled, Was 2020 a Pandemic Write-Off? Not so fast. <laughs> yeah, indeed. I mean, I think 2020 was actually in hindsight, a pretty good year for me, especially from a from a learning and development perspective. I've flown a lot of miles, and uh, uh, and I've learned a lot. 
And 2020 started out great because you purchased that new Ventus 2CXT, correct? Yeah, that's right. I had basically actually at the just at this time last year, I was sort of in the final throes of uh, negotiating the the purchase of my first uh, my first glider, and um, it was based in in Dallas, Texas, and uh, <clears throat> you know it was it looked really good on the on the pictures and. Uh, did all the due diligence that I could do on the paperwork uh, from from home, negotiated the price, and then uh, you know when I drove down to Texas, it just looked as good as it as it looked on paper, and uh, so I was very happy to get the deal closed and uh, hitched the whole trailer back on the on the car and <laughs> and uh, trailered it back home. It was a, it was a great it was a great purchase. Eighteen meter, correct. Yeah, it's an 18-meter uh, high-performance glide. It's from Champiet. It's, uh, as, as you said, the Ventus 2CXT. Uh, so the, the T stands for the turbo. So it has a, a turbo uh, sustainer engine. Uh, it's not usable for taking off. It's just a sustainer. It basically, has no throttle. So you can uh, <laughs> it, has, it goes or it doesn't go. <laughs> so <laughs> you, definitely, you definitely don't want to... Don't want to um, start it on the ground you can only start it in the air and it, it doesn't have a starter engine so it uh, starts through windmilling so if you're interested we can talk about that how but, does that uh, work it's a great glider oh how does that work yeah i mean it's basically you you fly uh, at a you know there's a certain speed that you fly so you you fly you know you've got to be high enough above the ground so because you need to accelerate and get the engine started so let's say you're at uh, you know 1300 feet or so above the ground and you're like yeah i don't know if i can find any lift i want to get home so what do you do then is you uh, put the flaps in the right position uh, you make sure the, the the gas line is on uh, you basically press a button uh, to turn the ignition on and that will also move the engine out of the engine bay uh, that's behind the cockpit so the engine will come up and then you um, uh, you accelerate to about 60, 65 knots. Uh, I would need to look at my checklist. Um, and and you, you pull the decompression handle. So that means the, the, the prop can spin um, in, the, in the wind as you, you, know, as you fly. Uh, the prop spins. And then you let go of the decompression handle and that will start the engine. Just, just like you would start um, you know, a car 40 years ago when, right. <laughs> when, the, when, when the engine was down and you would press the clutch, right? So you press the clutch and you get somebody to push the car and then you let go of the clutch. And that's basically the same thing that you're doing here. You, you let go of the decompression handle. That's kind of letting go of the clutch and that will make the engine start. And then it, it just goes into full rotation mode and you make sure you, you put the flaps into, uh, into uh, you know, slow climb flaps and um, you know, probably flap position one. And um, then you fly at uh, 55 knots, which is the base climb speed, and uh, it, will, <laughs> it will go up. <laughs> so I haven't used it much, to be honest. I've used it to, I've tried it out a few times just to make sure it works and I know how it works if I need it. But uh, I actually didn't need it for self-retrieve. There was, there was one flight I came close, but um, I have always, um, always been able to soar back home without the engine. But it's good. It's good. To, it's good to have it. It's good to have it. It's it's kind of it's a convenience item. It's not a safety item. So, for anyone who's thinking about motorized gliders, I really want to emphasize 
that um, an engine in a glider cannot be relied upon. I mean, this is probably one of the most reliable engines there is. And uh, so far it has started each time I tried it. But if you read the stories, uh, there's so many accidents of people who um, relied on their engine, uh, flew over unlandable terrain, uh, tried to get it out, didn't start, and then they crashed. So you definitely don't want to use it as a... Uh, as a safety item, you want to only use it as a convenience item. So you have to be over a field that you can land in high enough uh, that in case the engine doesn't retract, um, uh, you can safely land even with the engine out. And that's a huge drag producer. Um, uh, but uh, you cannot rely on the engine to work. Yeah, use it. pretend it's not there. Yeah, that's the best thing. You pretend it's not there and then you know fly to a field and then you can start it just to avoid landing in the field. And if it starts, you should look at this as, uh, you know, as, a, as a welcome surprise. And you can, you can motor home. And if it doesn't start, you just land in the field as you would with the glider anyway. That's how you responsibly use it. That was one of my goals for the years, make sure that I responsibly use the engine and not, you know, don't, don't do things that, that, that are stupid. And uh, I think I've learned that. Yeah, safety first, absolutely. Yeah, always. So February, you traveled down to the SSA convention in Little Rock, right? Yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, this is it, this is the second time I went to an SSA convention, and you know, it's always fun to uh, meet people that are like minded and uh, have have good stories to tell. There's also great content. Uh, there's also these, you know, a lot of new shiny objects that you can you yeah. can stare at, <laughs> uh, talk, talk to people. I mean, there's, there's a lot of people there. I mean, Sebastian Kava was there, and there was a lot of uh, a lot of people there. I met with uh, Daniel Sazin, uh, who was one of your guests, uh, I believe, on, on the podcast as well. Yeah, our friend Daniel. And, yeah, Daniel. He's he's been great. He I, I met him for a few hours, so he's been very generous with his time, and he he briefed me on. I had signed up at the time. I had signed up for two contests. I had signed up for uh, uh, contests in in Montague, California, uh, where I was going to fly with a friend of mine in his uh, two seater and a twenty meter uh, uh, ship in an AS thirty two MI, and uh, the uh, and then also in Nephi, uh, where I had signed up to fly in the in the Region Nine uh, regionals. And so Daniel has flown contests in both of those places. Actually, in, in uh, the Montague one was a little further back. Uh, the Nephi one was a few years ago where he won the sports class nationals uh, in Nephi. So Daniel briefed me on, on both of those soaring sites. And it's great if you have the chance to talk to someone who's been there, flown those contests. And, you know, you talk about, the, the terrain, you talk about where the typical energy lines set up, you talk about the prevailing winds, the, you talk about the, uh, you know, sort of the, the, the area where you might expect good lift, bad lift, you might uh, talk about where, you know, fronts might be moving in. So, for example, in the Nephi area where you have the lake to the north, there's, uh, uh, there's very often um, uh, poor, uh, if you have a northerly flow, then, then poor air is coming in from the lakes and destroying the lift. So there's there's a lot to learn about contest sites, and if you can talk to someone who's flown there and uh, you know can point out where to you know where where to pay attention to particular things, also where the the landout areas are, how good they are, how high you need to be to get there, and how you know 
uh, where you have to pay particular attention to stay high. I mean, all those things are very, very useful. And uh, so I was very happy and very glad he uh, spent the time with me uh, to, to brief me on those things. That's very cool. Now, you are very grateful. You actually managed to spend a week in Nephi later on in 2020, right? Yeah, this is also this was my second time in Nephi. Uh, I was there the year earlier as well, uh, and then you know last year, basically the contest in Nephi got canceled, like all contests in the U.S. Last year got canceled. I think other than the the seniors, which happened in you know before the the, the whole COVID disaster started, uh, <clears throat> but every other contest I believe was canceled. Um, and so Bruno Vassel, uh, who basically organized the contests in Nephi, he basically just suggested to the pilots who had signed up for the contest to see if anybody would want to come fly during the time when the contest was held. And uh, so I, there's a bunch of us who made the trip out, and uh, it's always great to to fly. Nephi is a great place uh, to fly. It's it's kind of mountain flying similar to, to Boulder. Uh, but it's it's a lot more, it's a, it's a little more um, it's 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 easier actually uh, than than in than in Boulder. Boulder is more the terrain in Boulder is more hostile. There's there's fewer places to land. Nephi offers better landing terrains. The valleys are wider and uh, they have a lot of fields in them. But it's uh, it's it's a great place to fly. The soaring conditions are just phenomenal. Uh, very strong lift in the summer, long long energy lines, some really good convergence flying. And, uh, you know, basically, since I'm, I'm trying to get it to fly the same contest, you know, this this coming year now, I thought that was would be a great opportunity to make sure I really get to know the area better, uh, especially with my new glider, uh, and uh, which allowed me then also to fly, you know, much longer tasks. Uh, in the area and there were some really good pilots uh, there uh, to fly with so you know one of one of um, our boulder pilots actually uh, you know national champion uh, john seaborn um, was there as well and he's he's been really uh, coaching me a lot and helping me and and um, you know we had we had uh, one day that i wrote about as well so if anyone's interested in in that one in particular i wrote about one day where you know, five of us flew the same task. You know, John won that by quite some margin, but I didn't. You know, I, I didn't do too badly. So, <laughs> but I, I learned a whole lot by just analyzing that particular flight and looking at my performance, everybody else's performance, and and where exactly the differences are in performance, and you know where, you know what what the metrics are that really matter, and. Um, what made the difference at the end of the day. And, and so I've learned a lot about my flying style and about uh, what it takes to improve further uh, from here. So it was a great experience all around. And you actually flew with Bruno for a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah. Bruno flew uh, a lot of those days as well. He, 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 he didn't, we didn't fly, I think we didn't fly exactly the same task on any particular day, but we were flying along, you know, we were we're flying the same routes several times, and you know, uh, along along the same routes. And uh, he's he's uh, he's uh, you know, he obviously this is his home territory. He knows it better than anyone. Uh, 
Right. And uh, I was, I'm not going to be following Bruno <laughs> over, <laughs> over that terrain in some areas where he knows exactly where he will find lift and he knows exactly where he can land. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, so so I'm, I'm just, I'm a little more conservative uh, flying in that area since I don't know it that well yet. Yeah, but he's he's great to fly with. He's a, he's also you know he's very very entertaining and uh, he's just a, he's just a great guy. He is. Yeah, we've of course you spoke earlier. We've had him on the podcast once, but definitely going to have him back on. Yeah, yeah. No, he will. He's he's you know he's been one of the biggest champions for soaring um, in the U.S. for many years. I mean, his videos have the, I think has have probably still the highest uh, viewership of any uh, soaring uh, videos on the on, on YouTube don't know exactly how he made the breakthrough actually he gave a talk about that in in the at the convention he talked about his videos so he didn't talk about soaring he talked about how to make soaring videos and get people to watch them oh nice so i've been i've been trying to follow that advice uh and um uh, I still don't know exactly how to get people to watch them as much as, much as he as he's able to do but uh it's uh, you know there's Yes, great things to learn from him all around. Yeah. Well, I'll get your YouTube link and I'll put it on the show notes here because I'm sure some people will be interested in watching this. Yeah, I mean, I have I have a different I have my own style for those videos. I try and put a lot of commentary in it, especially footnotes. I I have a harder time than some other pilots talking during the flight, explaining everything what they're thinking because I'm thinking too much and I'm <laughs> concentrating on flying and can't explain everything while I'm flying, but I can explain things afterwards. And uh, so I tried to put a lot of commentary in. So it's, uh, it's, uh, I, I get really good feedback from people who watch it. So I just don't have the same audience, but uh, the people who yeah, are interested in learning something about, about soaring, I think they find it quite useful. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Absolutely. Now you were able to fly in the OLC speed league. What was your best flight? I know you have some tough competition there in Boulder. <laughs> yeah, no, actually, I, I wasn't doing badly. We have the, you know, Boulder uh, has a tradition of competing in the OLC Speed League. We have pretty good conditions for doing that. And, um, I mean, the Speed League is, uh, it's basically, you know, you put their flights on on, uh, on on the OLC and, there is a number of weekends in the year that count for the speed league. Uh, it's usually, I think, 18 weekends. Last year was shortened to 13 weekends. And uh, the top three scores from each uh, club uh, on any particular weekend will count for the club score. And so, uh, the, you know, so you, you basically, if you want your flight to count, you have to be in the top three of your club. And uh, we have... I think we've got 30 pilots or so, 35 pilots that actually uploaded flights oh, wow. for those speed league days. And I think probably about 10 or 15 are, uh, you know, the, the, the extra, yeah, around 10 probably are, are trying to, to make their scores count uh, when they fly. So uh, there's, there's definitely uh, some, you know, some, some friendly competition uh, going on. Uh, but it's really a, more about a team effort, right? The, the whole goal is uh, we help each other out. We try and point out where the good energy lines are and where to fly. And so we try and get, you know, get flying as fast as possible over, uh, you know, there's a two and a half hour period of time. And you have to, a maximum of four legs will count for the, for the speed league. So you basically try and get two and a half hours during which you're, flying pretty fast 
So the, my, my fastest flight was uh, at an average speed of 173 kilometers per hour, wow. I believe. So 105 miles, 106 miles, average speed over two and a half hours. So that was, that was pretty fast. Uh, that was pretty fast, yeah. So we have, we have good conditions for that because we, have, we often have a very strong convergence line that sets up. And so if you follow that convergence line, you can often fly without turning. And you can, you know, if the convergence is really strong, you can even fly pretty fast without turning. So on, on that particular flight, I think my average, uh, I only turned like for 6% of the time or something like that. Oh, wow. So it's a, a ridiculously small amount. So like 94% of the time you're flying straight and you're flying straight fast. So that's, uh, that's what allows these speeds to happen but yeah boulder did really well our club did really well we came in second in the u.s and we came in second in the world wow so we were only beat, we were only beaten by the the minden soaring uh, club uh, minden nevada they they have even stronger conditions uh, with their in the owens valley um, but quite similar actually i mean from a from a setup standpoint but they also can fly in wave and if you can do it in wave, uh, you're even faster because you're flying higher and the air gets even thinner, yeah. and then uh, your ground speed goes up uh, even more. So, but with very strong conditions, and uh, I think this is the first. This is the top result that we had as a club is, uh, is uh, coming in coming in uh, second. So you were the top two. You said Minden was the only one. Yeah, Minden beat us. I mean, the in the Minden beat us in the uh, in the in both, right? Obviously, it's instead of for the best. So in the gold league, in, in the U.S. gold league and in the world league, and we came in second for both. So in the, I think in the world there were one over one thousand clubs participated. So we came in second out of over one thousand clubs. So pretty good result. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good. So how is your 14er challenge going? And for those that are not aware of this, maybe can you briefly explain that challenge? Yeah, this is a, this is really cool. This is a local thing. Uh, so there's one of our club members, um, uh, Colin Barry. He uh, initiated that challenge about, gosh, I think 2008 to 2007. Um, and there is, among mountain climbers, there is this one thing in Colorado where, you know, as a mountain climber, you want to climb, if you if you really sort of want to be a, uh, considered a, you know, a, a world-class Colorado mountain climber, uh, you want to climb all the 14ers. So those are the mountains in Colorado that are over 14,000 feet tall. And they are pretty spread out across the state. We have a number of big mountain ranges that have uh, peaks that are over 14,000 feet tall. And so uh, Colin's idea was, you know, why don't we make this a soaring challenge where instead of climbing those 14,000 foot peaks, and there is uh, 58 of them, depending on how you count, 53 to 58, depending on, on what, what the definition is that you use, what a, what a 14er is. Um, you would think that's pretty straightforward, but it's not. Uh, <laughs> uh, it doesn't matter. So let's say there's 58 uh, 14ers in Colorado. So the challenge is to basically fly across, uh, fly above all of them. And, uh, you know, you don't have to do it in, in one year. I think nobody has done it in one year. Uh, and the challenge has been up for 12 years, or so yeah, since 2008 for 12 years, and there's only four pilots that have so far uh, been able to complete the 14er challenge and fly above all those peaks. Wow. 
Um, and, uh, you know, we've, as, as I mentioned, we've pretty talented pilots here, including a number of world champions, uh, sorry, U.S. champions. Uh, and so, so it's, it's definitely, a, it's definitely a, a tricky thing to do because you have to have the right weather, you have to plan those flights accordingly and uh, don't want to take any risks, um, uh, any safety risks. Uh, and uh, these peaks are far away from one another and they spread out across the state and oftentimes you have to cross multiple mountain ranges to even get there. Right, so you take off from Boulder. You basically have to fly. Sometimes you fly, you know, hundred plus miles to even get to the mountain range that you want to get to, and then you have to fight the weather to fly over the peaks, and then you have enough time in the day left to basically make it back home. So it's not, it's a it's a it's a great challenge. It's a it's a real challenge. Oh, it's, it's like one of those local things that is that is really cool to do, and it's super scenic, right? I mean, these are these are the kind of the most beautiful mountains uh, in the U.S. or among the most beautiful mountains in the U.S. So you get to see really spectacular terrain as you do that. And so I've been on this challenge since I started to fly cross-country here. But going into the year, I think I had, I had 11 of the 58 peaks that I had uh, managed to get to. And uh, and this past year, uh, I think I added another 29 or so, or a little, yeah, around 28 or so of those peaks. And, and uh, some that were quite a bit further away than, you know, there's some that are pretty close to, to Boulder, obviously. I mean, Long's Peak and, and Mount Evans are, are the two closest ones. And there is five ones in the, in the front range and out of those, well, I mean, I think Long's and Evans, you can actually get there and stay within glide range of Boulder. Uh, as soon as you go to the other ones, uh, it gets it gets questionable. Uh, you know, there's maybe two more, three more that you can go in within glide range, and then uh, everything else you basically have to really leave glide range and go cross country to get there. You can't go to another location and start there. Do you have to start in Boulder? The rules allow that you can start from another location. And I think some of the pilots have done it from multiple locations and have driven to other places. There's at least one uh, who has been able to do it all of the all of the peaks from Boulder, uh, and that is that adds another le level of complexity to it, right? Because you've got the San Juan Mountains there in the southwest corner of Colorado, and there are probably about uh, I don't want to tell anything wrong, but I think probably close to 200 miles away. So you almost have to fly 200 miles to get there. Then you have to round the peaks and then you have to have, then you have to fly 200 miles back home. Uh, so that's pretty hard. And uh, the guy who did it, did it in a, uh, in an ASW 20. So that is just, a, you know, it's, it's a 1980s design, 15 meter glider. So not the not the highest performance uh, machine, but it, so it can be done, um, and uh, but that's that's super adventurous, right? So um, I, it's probably that's probably outside of my comfort zone actually <laughs> to try try and do that. But uh, the whole challenge is a uh, is a lot of fun, and uh, you know you, obviously you don't want to take any risks, so you want to do it responsibly and do it on days when the the weather is uh, pretty consistent and you don't run into major thunderstorms or anything like that that's uh, that could that could really mess things up absolutely do you know what your total distance was that you flew in 2020 
Yeah, I just calculated this. So it's uh, it's just under 20,000 kilometers. So that's almost half around the the earth. So uh, wow. it's not bad for not bad for one soaring season. And there's yeah. there's a lot of pilots that fly a lot further than that, but uh, it's still it's, it's not a not a bad year for for cross country flying, especially given that we had the, the COVID crisis and I was flying a new glider. So all those things were, you know, it's it's good to look back on it. Yeah, I barely flew the pattern. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, <laughs> that's, that's terrible. <laughs> you got to change that, Chuck. A little better, but yeah, I got to change that. And I, I did not fly as much as I should have, for sure. I, I'm looking forward to 21 to do a lot more flying. Yeah, that'll be good, and hopefully. We'll get a vaccine here soon, and uh, things will uh, look, you know, everything will look better. Yeah, absolutely. As far as flap gliders, jumping into the Venice 2CXT, that was kind of new to you, right? Yeah, I had never flown with flaps before uh, this year. So I was flying the the prior two years, I was flying mostly uh, a discus. So that's a 15-meter standard class glider. We have two in our club as club gliders, so... Those were the ones that I was flying with, and uh, I did all the badges in in those gliders. The uh, so this year had the the Ventus uh, and the Ventus two, and it it has flaps. But and I thought you know flaps was gonna be a big change, and uh, uh, it in hindsight it, it really is is a much smaller deal than uh, than I anticipated it would be. Um, it's uh, it's just I mean it's a huge performance improvement uh, because basically what the flaps allow you to do is they allow you to fly. Um, I mean the, the main advantage is they allow you to fly much faster uh, without as much drag. So in high speed mode, uh, the negative flaps are a huge benefit to uh, to fast flying speeds. Um, in slow mode, so if in slow flying mode, they're, they're helpful too. So for thermaling, you can thermal slower than you could otherwise thermal, uh, allowing you obviously to fly so uh, smaller circles and you know staying closer to the core of the lift. Um, but I, I don't think that in the that the bigger the bigger advantage is in the is in cruise mode uh, than in climb mode. Uh, they do help in climb mode too, but they help more in cruise mode. In, in the Venus in particular, I mean, the, the flaps are extremely well designed. It's just super easy. There's a, the, the flap handle is, is just to the left in the cockpit and your, your hand is basically resting right on the flaps um, during the whole flight. And the, the flaps are also integrated with the, uh, with the trim. So it basically, as you move the, the flap handle, the trim automatically adjusts with the, with the flaps. So you basically never really have to move the trim. I mean, I hardly ever move the trim at all this year. And it, it feels like it's always trimmed for, you know, for most flying speeds, it's trimmed just fine. Uh, only if you go really, really fast, you want to trim it a little bit further forward. But otherwise, you don't have to move the trim at all. And so you basically, and it's it's kind of, it's just as intuitive, basically, as pulling on the stick. So let's say you're, you're pulling into a thermal. Basically, uh, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm moving the, I'm moving, I'm pulling a little bit on the stick. But as soon as the, the speed is a little bit down, I'm also starting to adjust the flaps in, into more positive area. Uh, and uh, then you know, then you you know, move it up into circling flaps. It's usually at plus two. You fly your thermal, and then you, as you exit the thermal, you move the flaps back forward, just as you as you ease the stick forward. 
And so it's basically this is a sort of a parallel action of moving the stick and the flaps uh, almost in, in unison. And uh, so it's very intuitive, very easy to do, and um, it doesn't take much of an adjustment at all. The only adjustment really is to make sure that when you're taking off and when you're landing that you use the right flap settings uh, and that you sort of, you know, there's, there's a little bit of adjustment at the, on the, you know, for example, on, on takeoff when you're behind on, in the aerotel mode, you're behind the tow plane, you're actually starting your, you start your um, takeoff roll in negative flaps. Uh, because that gives you more aileron control. So you move the flaps all the way negative uh, to at low speeds behind the tow plane, you're, you have best aileron control with negative flaps. And then as soon as the tow plane has accelerated to like 20, 30 miles per hour, uh, you're starting to uh, move the flaps um, towards neutral. And then you know, it's usually neutral or plus one that you use for your tow, depending on the tow speed. Uh, that you're flying. So there's a, there's a little bit of extra work, so to speak, on, on the takeoff roll because in addition to doing what you normally do, right, controlling the plane with the, the ailerons and the rudder, you now also have the flaps that you're working. But that wasn't so much of an adjustment because for the, for the discus, when I was flying the discus, I was using on takeoff roll, I would extend the air brakes on takeoff roll because if you do that on takeoff roll, the air brakes also give more aileron control because the wind will blow more over the uh, over the ailerons, and so you have more control more uh, control there. And then as soon as you're in in rolling speed, uh, you basically uh, move re you retract the flaps, uh, so you retract the spoilers. And so I was already used to doing something on takeoff roll, so it, on the discus it was the spoilers, and now it's the flaps. So it's not a, it's not such a big deal. And, and that's really it. I mean, on, on landing, you know, you just put, put the right flap position. You land uh, with positive flaps. Um, I usually land with positive two, not with landing flaps, because, again, you have more aileron control. Uh, and then as soon as you're firmly on the ground, again, you push the flaps into negative, um, and that gives you even more aileron control, and it, allows, and, and it really settles the, the glider on the ground, and you have a very, very smooth ground roll. Uh, if you do that. So those are the main adjustments, but it's, I thought first, I thought I would need to pay attention to my flying speed and adjust the flaps based on flying speed. And that is something that just happens automatically. It's so intuitive. Uh, you don't really have to pay much attention to it. And what speed are you landing at normally? Um, I mean, I think the yellow triangle is at 60 knots. So it depends then in when you add the wind speed, right? So, and, and gusts as, as uh, appropriate. Uh, in Boulder, usually it's, uh, it's quite a bit faster than that in the final approach. You usually do the final approach at, at around 70 knots. Um, you know, then you basically, on the, the, the Venus, I think it lands really, really nicely. I just let it basically fly until it, it doesn't fly anymore. So I just keep it, keep it in ground effect, uh, spoilers halfway out, uh, and I keep it in ground effect until it just doesn't fly anymore, until it basically stalls and lands. It, it's very, very smooth. Uh, I've not, not had one issue on any landing. So this has been really good. So on a calm day, you, you can come in at 60? Oh, yeah, you can come in at 60, yeah. You could probably fly slower, but, you know, you don't want to fly. You, you want to fly with more energy, right? So I, I, I always, always err on the side of having more energy, uh, especially if you fly a site like Boulder where 
you know, there's <clears throat> with two landing directions um, that maybe use both landing directions pretty pretty frequently depending on the winds because they tend to shift around. And, uh, you know, in both cases, you have a risk of, of significant sink on final. So in one case, we fly over a lake and uh, the lake tends to be very sinky and the lake is right before the runway. <laughs> so you definitely don't want to come short because otherwise you're in the lake. And if you come in from the other side and there's a west wind, the, the, the runway drops off. And, and so as the runway drops off, you tend to, you tend to get uh, rotors there and, and sink um, uh, where, the, where the runway drops off. Um, so you definitely want to have more energy rather than less. And we had talked about your 750K that you completed. So your next goal is, of course, more than 750. Are you going for the 1,000? Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the things I, I keep, you know, as I, I'm, I'm right now I'm sort of in the midst of trying to figure out what, what goals I should set for next year. But uh, <clears throat> I think there's, there's definitely going to be a distance goal. And it's, it might be a combination of distance goals. So... Uh, a thousand would be nice, or a 750 FAA triangle would be nice, or you know, with one, you know, more Fortinas would be nice. And, and then we have one other pretty cool thing here that is a local thing, which we call the the border to border flight. And there aren't that many people have done that. That's basically starting in Boulder, flying to New Mexico, going to Wyoming, and coming back to to Boulder. And that's close to 1,000. I think it's just under 1,000. Uh, on a great day, you could make it 1,000. Just add a little bit more to it but not many people have done that one yet uh, so that that would be cool or getting to another state with to any other new state would be cool like getting to utah and back that, that might be cool so there's going to be some distance goal uh, in there for next year that is going to be interesting very cool and we all hope it's going to be a better year i think it will be yeah, no, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, I've, I'm, as I say, you know, I, I will fly uh, contests this year, so I'm, I've signed up for uh, the Nephi one that hopefully won't be oversubscribed, uh, and the uh, the Montague one. So those are still on the list. Um, if I I'm, and then I signed up for a one in in May. Actually, I'm gonna fly for the first time. I'm gonna fly in Flatlands. So I'm gonna trailer to minnesota and i'm going to fly in albert lee minnesota in the in the region seven uh, contest uh, and then hopefully that gives me some points that allow me to to get into the nephi contest there's so many people trying to get into that nephi contest that seems uh, it's uh, it's crazy uh, but nephi would be the best one because now i know the terrain pretty well and uh, i really like flying that so it's a very nice place to, to fly a contest so those are those are the ones I'm looking forward to as well, and uh, you know, there's gonna be a lot of interesting things. Um, and I know which skills I need to improve for next year because I, I really have done a lot of analysis on my flights for the for the past year, and I think I know where where to where to work and uh, and get better. It's a it's, it's that's one of the greatest things about soaring is there's always more to learn. You, you're never done. Absolutely. <laughs> we will be checking back with you to see how. 21 is going thanks again for joining us it's been a lot of fun chatting with you always enjoy chatting with you clemens yeah well it's always a pleasure uh being on the podcast so uh, thank you so much for keep keeping doing this i've been listening to uh pretty much all episodes i believe uh i was really intrigued by the by the last few that that you had so um very impressed by by your 14 year old jack uh who sounded you know much more mature than than his age and uh then 
it's always great to have uh, you know somebody like Stefan Lange on your podcast where you can you know the really world-class pilots where you can you can learn a lot from so thanks for doing that yeah definitely take care Clemens we'll talk to you soon okay all right thank you so much We now join Hanna Truslova as she brings us our Soaring Safety segment here on Soaring the Sky. Safety, safety, that's one big question in gliding, I guess, and in gliding competitions also. I also have some scary flights and I sometimes uh, did something which wasn't safe. Uh, I think it comes when you start gliding and competing very young and young and stupid. I think you have to realize uh, that your results are are never more important than the safety. Uh, gliding is great sport because you can do it many years, even when you get old. Uh, so you must not harm yourself for one medal or podium. Uh, if you do wrong in some task, it doesn't matter. There will be other tasks and other medals. Uh, so I would advise that you, other pilots shouldn't be scared but should be safe and uh, always think that they can fly again tomorrow if today something didn't come as well as they wish. And we have to learn from our mistakes. I guess gliding is a um, typical example of a sport where you take uh, your knowledge uh, for many years and you have to learn from your mistakes and don't repeat them. Thank you again for joining us here for another episode on Soaring the Sky. If you are new to soaring and maybe this is your first time listening, thank you. We do appreciate it. But if you want to find out where you can catch your first glider flight, you can do that by going to ssa.org. And while you're online, you can also check out our website, soaringthesky.com. And you can always drop us a line at chuck at soaringthesky.com. Until next time, stay healthy, stay safe, and happy soaring. If you would like to say hi, just drop Chuck a line at chuck at soaringthesky.com. Or you can send us a note on the website, soaringthesky.com. Also, if you're a pilot, we want to hear your story. Just send us an email and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next week for another great guest and adventure on Soaring the Sky. Music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Voiceover work was provided by Michelle Perez. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton.